Good morning, Refuge Church. How are y'all doing this morning? So again, my name is Blake. I'm one of the pastors here at the Refuge, and again, I'm so glad that y'all are here. Uh, it's cool, so cool to see a packed house today, so I'm glad that uh, y'all chose to come and, and worship Jesus with us here together. It's a big deal that you chose, of all the different churches around, that you chose to come here to Refuge. And I know we have quite a few new uh, families here, so if you haven't had a chance to meet me, I'd love to meet you. Or if you haven't talked to a blue shirt, talk to one of them, but we'd love to let you know more and more about what it looks like to be a family here at the Refuge. Uh, so today it is my joy to continue in our new series, The Minor Prophets, and uh, this is something that we were able to introduce last week. I was able to give us kind of a, a, a 30,000 foot overview before we start actually going down to the ground and looking at each of these 12 books of The Minor Prophets. And um, so we acknowledge at The Refuge that, um, and our pastoral team acknowledges that The Minor Prophets are not often the go-to books for Bible studies. Uh, or even our gospel community group studies. I know that, that books on the minor prophets in, in, in Christian bookshelves aren't exactly flying off the shelves, but it's actually our, um, the reason we wanted to go through this is because of that very infamiliarity we have with the minor prophets. I know for me, whenever I crack open the Bible, I'm usually not going to Zephaniah or Obadiah or Nahum, okay? I know, and I know I'm not the only one uh, that feels that way. Um, but if you missed last week, I'd really strongly encourage you to head to our website and watch the video from last week of our sermon, or uh, wherever you get podcasts, listen to the uh, last week so you can get a cu- catch up on, on the overview that we were able to give for uh, the, the mon- 12 minor prophets. So we looked at the placement, the context, and the overarching themes that we'll encounter as we walk through all 12 books of the minor prophets over the next weeks and months. So, um, so if you want a crash course in what are the minor prophets, who are they, where are they, uh, go, go give that a listen. So, so to give you a quick recap, there were two big overarching themes that we saw in the minor prophets um, as we're walking through those. So does anyone remember what those two big overarching themes were? I'm going to see how many of y'all were paying attention last week. What were those big overarching themes? There's two of them. What was that? Repent, yeah, so a call to repentance is the first one. What was the second one? Reminders of God's goodness. So as we're walking through, y'all, we're listening. I'm proud of y'all. Thank you so much. So yeah, so we're listening. Uh, yeah, these are the things that as we're walking through all 12 books, yes, each of the 12 books has their own themes and some of their own flavors to them, but the overarching themes that we're going to see through all 12 of these books is these two things, a call to repentance and reminders of God's love for us and his goodness to his people. So we also talked about where these books fall within the 66 books of the Bibles itself. Uh, as a reminder, we at Refuge believe that, that all the 66 books of the Bible point to the goodness of God and what he has done for us, which is pursuing and rescuing his people through the work and life of Jesus Christ. So whether it's in the New Testament here in blue, looking back at what Jesus has already done in the finished work of the cross and working out the implications of what that means for us today, or just in the Old Testament, looking forward to the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. The God promises to redeem his people back to himself, reiterating this promise over and over and over throughout all 39 books of the Old Testament. And it's here that we find our 12 books of the Minor Prophets, right there at the end, at the, um, at, at, at the end of the Old Testament. They're finishing out the Old Testament before there are over 400 years of silence before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So it's here that we find the Minor Prophets. And where we're going to start is we're going to start with the book of Hosea. So if you can, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And if you need a Bible, by the way, we have some here on the, 
on the communion tables around the, around the room. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you, so please go ahead and grab one. You are going to need a physical Bible today uh, because not all the verses are going to be up on the screen, so get ready to, to read with me, okay? So as we're getting there, now by the way, if you're, if you're not sure how to get to Hosea, because again, this is not something we typically crack open ourselves, right? So what you do, open up your Bible to the middle, and you'll probably land somewhere in Psalms or Proverbs or Isaiah, and then just hang a right, and then keep on going for a few books past limitations, past you know, some of these other Ecclesiastes, and, uh, and right after the major prophet of Daniel, you will find uh, our book of Hosea this morning. If you get to Matthew or Revelation, you've gone way too far, okay? So just keep, keep, keep on going back. So while you're finding your way to Hosea, let me, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this day. God, thank you for choosing to speak through your prophet Hosea. I look forward to seeing what you have for us this morning. Even though these are words that were written thousands of years ago, God, you sustain these words on paper for us to read today that we believe is edifying to us today, that is, is valuable and is profitable for teaching, God. So we look forward to seeing the promises that you have for us today, what, you, um, what you're going to teach us about yourself and the work that you have done and ultimately calling us back to yourself, God, as your people. So we love you. We praise you. Let us be good listeners of the Holy Spirit as we're reading these scriptures together. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so let's start right off the top, starting in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So we start with an introduction to the prophet after whom the book is named, Hosea. And this is actually a common opening that we're going to see throughout most of the books of the, of the, um, of the minor prophets. So, um, so what this does is this gives us a who and when of what's going on in the book of Hosea. So for the who, we have a guy named Hosea, who's the son of another guy named Beri. That's about it. That's all we got. That's all we know about him. So like I said last week, we often don't get a lot of backstory on these minor prophets. So um, after all, where they came from really isn't that important in comparison to the message they speak to us on behalf of God himself, right? So, so as we're focusing on this, the focus is usually on the message, not the messenger. And so that's something we're going to make sure we focus on, that what he's saying, these are the words of God speaking through his servant, Hosea. So that's the who. So for the when, he names off all the kings, both of the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, Israel. So we see that Hosea is in the days after the kingdom is divided into north and south, and, um, but before either kingdoms have fallen. So if you're tracking with what we were talking about last week, this is what we would call a pre-exile book of the, of the minor prophets. So that's the who, and that's the when. So let's keep going in verse 2. Read with me. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Anyone else's eyebrows like up here like me? That took a hard right turn, did it not? Hard right turn. Okay, so and I, we acknowledge that, okay? We acknowledge that this, this goes right out of the gate. They're punching us right in the teeth, okay? So I acknowledge that. And, and so if you haven't already guessed, today's sermon and next week's sermon on Hosea, 
going to be very PG-13, okay? So, um, so I look forward to the awkward questions you're going to be getting from your kids at lunch today. And uh, you can blame that solely on me, actually not me, on the Holy Word of God, okay? Because it's in the Bible. That's what we're doing. We're preaching the Bible. And so that's where we're at today. But uh, just be, uh, be prepared and buckle up. We're, this is going to be a theme that we see today as we go through. So other translations for the word whoredom is actually, you might see it read, read as prostitution or promiscuity. But no matter how you translate it, the command God gives Hosea is a very unusual one for, a, for, a, uh, for anyone, much less a, a, a prophet of God, a servant of God. Go and marry a prostitute. And that's, that's, that's a tall order, is it not? So why does God tell him to do such an unusual thing? Well, it tells us right here in the verse, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. God wants Hosea's marriage to represent the spiritual state of the land, the spiritual state of God's people. So we'll get into this a little bit more, but I don't want you to miss this. That this is a theme we're going to see over and over throughout Hosea. That Hosea's marriage is a picture, a metaphor almost, of the, how God is interacting with the people of Israel. So let's keep moving because we need to see, after this strange request, what does Hosea do in response to this uh, unusual request from God. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore a son. So what does Hosea do? He's obedient. He does it. He goes and marries a prostitute. He finds Gomer, marries her, and we see here that they have a baby. So it's here that we see the story continues. Read with me in verses 4 and 5. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So we see these verses, we see the beginnings of God's prophetic warnings to the people of Israel through Hosea's family. So not only does it talk about uh, the end of the kingdom and broken bows like we see here in verse 5, but if you go back, you also see in verse 4, the very name that he gives his son is part of the prophecy that he is giving to the people of Israel. That name being Jezreel. So uh, the name Jezreel, you might sound, it sounds kind of like a play on words that's intentional. It's, uh, the play on words between Jezreel and Israel. You can even hear it in, as we talk about it as English speakers. Um, so the, the play on words is supposed to imitate that it's Israel, but it's Jezreel, so it's it's a little bit, it's almost the same, but it's a little off-axis. It's a little distorted, as we're seeing as a, as a picture of the distortion that the people of Israel are walking through as they're going through, kind of honestly, a sweet time in their lives right now. But not only this, there's a deeper meaning to the name Jezreel, and it can be translated as God will scatter. So Jezreel can be translated as God will scatter. So are you seeing how God is continuing to use this marriage as a mirror for how he sees the people of Israel. A marriage that starts with brokenness and is now giving birth to a warning. God will scatter you people. And God continues the warning with a next child that's born. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name Lorahama, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. 
Now, in your Bibles, and it might not actually say what the name is, Lord, I might just say no mercy, but that's the, the word that we see, the name. And so, so we have two children now. We have the first is born named Jezreel, translated as God will scatter. Now we have a second baby named Lorahama, which can be translated as no mercy. The first child warning of the end of the northern kingdom, and the second child warning of the mercy the northern kingdom will not receive. In fact, the northern kingdom, Israel, will receive no mercy. The southern kingdom, Judah, will receive mercy, as we see in the next verse. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So God warns that the northern kingdom, Israel, will not receive mercy, while the southern kingdom, Judah, will. The story continues in verses 8 and 9. But when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, a third child. And, this, and the Lord said, call his name Loami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So a third baby is born, and he's continuing this prophetic pattern for the names of these children born to Hosea and Gomer. Loami, translated as not my people. So let's just pause real quick. Let's take a deep breath, okay? Because I understand this took a hard right turn at verse 2, and it just, it just keeps rolling downhill, doesn't it? It keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so to kind of give us a, a, a recap of this downhill fall, we have God telling Hosea to marry a prostitute. He does, marrying Gomer, and they have three kids, Jezreel, Lorahama, and Loami. God will scatter, no mercy, and not my people. Pretty heavy. Just like we saw in verse 2, God is using not only Hosea's marriage now, but now his entire family to mirror the sorrow God has when he looks at his wayward people, Israel. Then, in verse 10, we have the first glimmer of light at the end of a very, very dark tunnel. So read with me in your own Bibles again. Open up to, to verse 10. We're going to be in Hosea 10, a reading from there. Yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it has said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So coming off of verses 2 through 9, what a beautiful word we have breaking this, this pattern in verse 10, yet. Remember, what are the two overarching themes that we see throughout all 12 minor prophets? What were they again? First one? Call to repentance. What was the second one? Reminders of God's goodness. For the call of repentance, we see God giving the warning to the people Israel using Hosea's family to demonstrate that story. But then we see the second thing, reminders of God's goodness. Here in verses 10 through 11, we see God reminding them of the promises made to their forefathers. We see how God aligns his reminders with the very warnings he gave in the children's names. Although we have Jezreel, God will scatter we see God's promise to gather the children together in verse 11. Do you see the, how the, the juxtaposition between those? 
although we have lo am I, not my people, we see God use one of the most intimate names for the Israelites. Not just my people, but calls them my children in verse 10. And in all this, although we have lower hum and no mercy, we see God not forsaking his promise, but reminding the people of his steadfast love despite their obstinance. Yes, the people were being called to repentance, but God, the loving Father, reminds the people of his goodness to keep his promise that he's given to their fathers. So this is chapter 1 of Hosea, and this sets the stage for the rest of the book. So from here, we're actually going to be covering a lot more ground. I know we're walking verse by verse through the book of Hosea, and and the reason we do that is here at Refuge, we hold expository preaching, is what we call it, uh, in high regard, which means we simply, our series is we usually just pick a book of the Bible and just walk through it until we're done. And the reason we do that is because it allows us not to skip the hard stuff, it also allows us to to simply highlight the, the text for what it's saying. We want you to know what God is saying through the Bible. We don't want you to know what I have to say and use the Bible to prove my point. You see the difference? That's why we hold that in such high regard here at Refuge. So we're starting with Hosea and walking through all of it. But we just walked through Ephesians, and unlike the New Testament where expository preaching, it's easy to camp down on one verse or two verses. In the Old Testament, like you probably noticed when we were going through Genesis, it lends itself to more narrative. So we're going to cover more ground, and it's going to cover more verses than that uh, because it's usually built into stories that point forward to the promises of God coming, ultimately fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus. So as we wrote, uh, so as we move into chapter 2, we see the Lord now speaking poetry through Hosea, a poem full of metaphor. So what I want to do is let's read it together, and I'm going to do my best to highlight some of the points as we move along through um, the first 13 verses of Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So read with me. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, the mother that is representing Israel. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I, representing God, am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Again, we see adultery and prostitution as a metaphor for the people of God embracing other gods other than the one true God. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children, representing the citizens of Israel, the the ancestry of Israel, also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but she shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And, as she, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, a pagan god. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take, back, take away my wool and flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness, in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, 
her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. In this verse 11, you can see the blending of the different religions here. And as laid waste to her vines and her fig trees, on which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. And she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. So again, we see God using a metaphor of the husband and wife, much like Hosea and Gomer's life, to illustrate the relationship between God and Israel. God, the faithful husband, and Israel, the adulterous wife who continuously runs away. Over and over, the wife runs away from her loving husband to the embrace of others, chasing after their gifts and affections, rejecting what God is offering her. Little does she know, as we read in verse 8, that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So, so let's stop for just a moment, and we're not going to focus on the husband. We're not going to focus on the wife. We're actually going to focus on the person she keeps running to. And we saw his name come up a couple times throughout chapter 2. What was that name? Y'all paying attention? What was it? Y'all got to speak up. What was that name? Baal. That's right. That, the lover that we continue to go through, the, lover she, the God that she continues to go through is Baal. Now, Baal is a pagan god, like we mentioned. He's actually the pagan god of fertility. And um, he's actually the most prominent of the Canaanite gods who they believed were responsible to all facets of fertility. Agriculture, animal husbandry, and even uh, human sexuality. Baal worship was a big problem among the Canaanites and Israelites because as Israel continued to live what was considered a prosperous life in the northern kingdom, the culture of the other peoples began to seep in. In their lavish comfort, they began to forget the God that got them there to begin with. They no longer worshipped solely the one true God, if they worshipped him at all. But they often had a blend of worshipping God among the other gods that were around them, just like we saw in verse 11. So this explains God's righteous jealousy for his people, whom he's carried through so much, who keep running away after false gods. And one of the reasons this metaphor of adultery is so spot on is because of one of the main ways that Baal was worshipped in this time. So again, this is where we're going to get into some more PG-13 content, so earmuffs your kid if you need to, okay? But uh, the temples were built for gods, uh, were built for all these gods, including Baal. And Baal, being the god of fertility and sexuality, was often worshipped through ritualistic sex with temple prostitutes. They actually called these women, uh, the prostitutes, they called them priests or priestesses of Baal. And they even had engaged in sex and orgies in worship of this false god Baal. It's pretty messed up. So you can see how this metaphor of adultery isn't just a metaphor. The people of God were often literally engaging in adultery in the name of other gods. How heartbreaking for that faithful husband. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, put yourself in, in, in God's shoes right now. Picture this with me. Your spouse, whom you love with all your heart. I know a lot of us in here are married. Think about this. You've cared for them. You've shown affection to them. You've been vulnerable and intimate with them. 
Now they look at you, reject you, and chase after the, another person that's offering them the very things you were trying to give them. And they've even taken the gifts you've already given them and give them to another who they're chasing after in rejection of you. It makes me sick to my stomach to think about it, that, if, if that were my sake, if that were my case. I'm sure I'm not alone. But before you get too sick to your stomach, I, I want to remind us of something to kind of help us see the weight of what the Lord is trying to show us through uh, Hosea chapters 1 and 2. The adulterous wife that we all probably have disdain for in our minds, she isn't just that person that we're thinking of over there, is she? She's also right here. She's right there, right there, right there, over there. This metaphor of the wife chasing after other gods, it's about all of us. We all turn away from the one true God and chase after our own desires, don't we? The God we chase after might not be the pagan god Baal, but there's plenty of other gods we worship, aren't there? I mean, the God you worship might not be named Baal, but it might be named wealth. Maybe the God you worship is named pleasure. Maybe the God you worship is named status or reputation or approval. And these are just a few, but I'm sure we could all put hundreds of names up here of the gods we continually run away from the one true God to worship. Do we not with our lives? When we look at our lives, there are plenty of other names we could be putting up on this screen. And look introspectively. You know that there are things that we continually put above God. We commit idolatry all the time, giving created things the worship we should be giving the Creator. But like we talked last week, most often the God we're chasing after the most is ourselves. Every time we sin, like we talked about last week, we are effectively turning away from God and trying to make ourselves the gods of our lives. And remember what I said last week? How, how good of a job do you do at that? You're terrible at it. Okay, so am I. Every time we try to do that, we try to make ourselves the gods of our universe, but we stink at it. But we keep on trying, don't we? We look at the gifts God has given us and look back up to Him and say, not good enough. We look at the warnings God gives us and the danger of chasing after our own desires and we say to him, I don't believe you. This thing will make me happier than you will, God. In my life, the God I'm often chasing after isn't Baal. It's Blake. It's me. And I know I'm not alone. I know we all feel that, the weight of that sin. This is the very adulterous posture God is speaking to through his prophet Hosea. But God follows up his call of repentance with the same second theme, reminders of his goodness. So pick back up with me in Hosea chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. 
For I will re- remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. God, the patient, loving husband, chases after his bride. Now, if we look back in in verse 14, did he chase her out of anger? No, he chased her out of tenderness. He will win her back to himself through his steadfast love and demonstration that his love is the only true love. It's the only love that sustains. It's the only love that lasts. It's the only love that saves. We're starting to see the glimmers of the promises to come. The glimmers of the gospel. The promise to be fulfilled. Y'all see it? You see how this is echoing Jesus to come. God rescuing his people. And we see this play out in the next short chapter between Hosea and Gomer. So read with me in chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lathic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to any other man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear of the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That is chapter 3 of Hosea. So the poetry we read in chapter 2 is now played out in the story we read in chapter 3. Hosea goes and yet again chases after his adulterous wife. This time, even having to buy her, purchase her back from the lover she ran to. So, he had either, so she had either fallen back into slavery, or more likely, she was now being controlled as a prostitute by what we today call a pimp. Think about that. I mean, place yourself in his shoes. Think about it today. You're... You get in your car. You drive down to the sketchiest part of Memphis. You walk into a dilapidated house. Then talk to some guy who is now renting your spouse's body out for anyone who has a couple bucks in their pocket. And to make matters worse, she wasn't kidnapped. She wasn't forced into this. She willingly ran away from you into his arms. And now you have to give him money in order to buy your adulterous spouse back. 
I mean, that is messed up. Do you, not, do you see that? Again, how heartbreaking is that? But this story is starting to sound really, really familiar, isn't it? This is actually one of the clearest metaphors of the gospel we find in the Old Testament and how beautiful of a story it is. A wife who runs away from her husband just to fall back into the slavery from which she came. The husband patiently and relentlessly chasing after her to buying her back with a price. And have you ever wondered how, how high was that price? In 3.2 we read, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lathic of barley. So, I mean, it doesn't give U.S. dollars here, so it's kind of hard for us to, to measure the value of what's going on here. But um, in the commentary, critical and explanatory of the whole Bible, a commentary that talks about this, uh, the authors say this, The price paid is too small to be a probable dowry wherewith to buy a wife from her parents, but it is just half of the price of a, normal, of a female slave. In money, the rest of the price being made up in grain. Hosea pays for this redemption of his wife who has become the slave of her paramour. The price being half grain was because the latter was an allowance of food for the slave and of the coarsest kind, not wheat, but barley. Israel, is, as committing sin, was the slave of sin, and the low price expresses Israel's worthlessness. So Hosea didn't pay full price that a bride's family would give to the groom a dowry, Hosea only paid a lesser amount, not the high price for a bride, but merely half the price for even a slave. How far she had fallen. But remember, in this metaphor, who is the adulterous wife? This guy. Us. All of us. And I say that to remind you of this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We read this in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Just like Gomer, we Christians were bought with a price. But was that price for God's children 15 shekels and some grain? Was it less? How does that compare? What was the price that was paid for us? Well, we read this in, in the book of Hebrews. Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Gomer was a slave to her prostituting master. We were slaves to sin. Hosea gave 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathic of barley to secure Gomer. But God in order to secure his people, his children, what did he give? He gave himself. It wasn't some shekels and some grain that purchased our redemption. It was something far more valuable. In fact, it was the most precious commodity in all of creation, the blood of Jesus. The book of Hosea is, is a shadow of the fulfilled promise that would come a few hundred years after its writing. The suffering of Jesus, his spilled blood to pay our debts once and for all, and his death and resurrection. Like we said before, we believe that all 66 books of the Bible are one big story. A story about God rescuing his people by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. 
This is my Savior. This Jesus who, who died the death that we all deserve. Paying the debt that we all owe. But on the third day, he rose from the tomb, conquering death forever. This is my Savior. And all it takes for him to be your Savior is to answer the call that we see over and over throughout the Minor Prophets, a call to repentance. God is calling us today, not just them then, to repent. Repent, turn from your sins, Confess to God that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe in your heart that Jesus is that Savior. Believe that he has the power to do this as demonstrated through the resurrection and seat at the right hand of the Father. We are all Gomer, an adulterous wife, continually running from our loving groom, but God in his immense love for us, died for us, to re- uh, for us to redeem us back to himself, purchasing us with his own blood. How he loves us and what a savior we have in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, 